Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jason Hefner. And he comes up and quite literally buries his nose in my asshole. That and more. But before that, we have an important announcement about our Portland and Seattle Risk Live shows that were supposed to happen in November. They've been moved to May 6th in Portland and May 7th in Seattle. We picked those two cities because they're two of our favorite places to come to, two of our biggest markets usually. But for November, most folks in Portland and Seattle seemed a little hesitant to be coming out so soon to, you know, big indoor shows. So the venues asked us to move them to the spring. So we hope by then everyone will be feeling more ready to come see us live. And if you'd like to help make sure that we go ahead and get those shows happening, make sure to get your tickets early. They're available now at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, anyone who did buy a ticket for the November shows can use that to attend the May shows, you know. And if you need a refund, just contact the show venue and they'll help you out. Thank you so much, everyone. And we really do look forward to seeing you on tour around the USA very soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Dorothy Ashby behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Unprepared. Three very different stories about people being caught off guard. Hey, you know, a little bit ago, I said on the show that I'm curious about Putting together some sort of social event, I have no idea what exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't know, renting a room in a bar, having like a potluck dinner. I don't know what it might be, but I'm thinking it would be nice to get Risk fans who live in New York City together just to be social with one another. You know, I'm just wanting to connect <laughs> a little bit more with Risk fans right here close to our home base. So if you are in New York or near New York and you're interested in learning more about that, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. And it might be too late by the time you're hearing this, but uh, the next Risk Live show is November 17th. That's Wednesday at Caveat in New York City at 7 p.m. Eastern. It'll also be live streamed. And you can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Let's get to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear one that was shared in 2019 when Risk was last in St. Louis. It's by Cynthia Lloyd. Really a very complex, interesting story. But before that, we're going to hear one that was recorded all the way back in 2014. Uh, one of the dates that Risk did in Minneapolis. This is a ridiculous story. <laughs> this one comes to us from Jason Hefner. So here is Jason now with a story we call 
cat people. It's early in the morning, and, and I've uh, stumbled out into the living room, and I sat down on the couch and turned on Sports Center reruns to catch the uh, highlights of the day before. And in, in saunters Tom, and Tom sits down next to me on the couch, and he's staring at the TV, and without even looking at me, he says in a really nonchalant way, he goes, you know, Jason, I, I think something's really wrong with socks. <laughs> now, rewind back a number of years. Tom is the brother of my best friend, Rob. And we all grew up together. And Tom was the type of brother that kind of comes along with your best friend. You know, that guy that does a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, it's good, bad, and ugly, but you know what? You're there for your best friend and you have to put up with it. And Tom's a taller guy and was kind of a heavy set kid. And he was really spontaneous and, and did some pretty random stuff, but not really in a threatening way. Tom was the kind of guy, Tom was actually the first guy I've ever met in my life who craved attention so much that he actually really craved negative attention as well. And what I mean by that is Tom would do stuff like, I don't know, put the cat in the microwave for five seconds to see what would happen. And not that Tom had a bad heart. Tom just knew that this was going to be a really good story to tell everybody, right? Tom would do things like um, bring a gun to school. And not that Tom had any intention of ever doing anything with the gun, but he got expelled, and Tom got a whole bunch of attention for that. And, and that was something that he truly craved. With that, though, came Tom's ability to take a joke. So as we grew up and as we started pulling pranks, Tom was the kid who could take the joke. And so therefore, he became the butt of all of our pranks. And so comes the day when we decide that we're sitting around and we got a whole bunch of friends. And I say to Tom, I say, Tom, have you ever heard of the impossible sit-up? And he goes, no, I've never heard of the impossible sit-up. And I go, well, here, here's the game, Tom. Here's the game. If a human being lays down in a horizontal position on the floor and their eyes are covered with a wet washcloth and somebody pushes on their stomach and on their chest in a specific sequence, it's physically impossible to do a sit-up. And he goes, fuck you. Don't believe what you're saying to me right now. And I go, no, 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 no. Now, you got to imagine, this is before we had the internet, before he could pull it out of his pocket and check this, if this was true, right? So he goes, fuck you guys. This is a bunch of bullshit. And we go, no, watch this. This is true. So our buddy Sonny lays down, who's obviously in on this prank, right? So Sonny lays down, we get a wet washcloth. And we come over, we put it over his eyes, a couple of our buddies hover over him, they start pushing on his stomach, they start pushing on his chest, and to this day, I think Sonny gave probably the most Oscar-winning performance I've ever seen in my life, because he could not do a sit-up for the life of him, physically tried to do a sit-up, he was grunting, doing the whole bit, and Tom was just like, this is a bunch of shit. And I go, well, you can't do a sit-up, it's physically impossible, he goes, I'm going to fucking prove you wrong. We go, okay, prove us wrong. So Tom starts to lay down. And the whole time, he's kind of rattling on like, this is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm going to do five setups before you can fucking blink. This is stupid. And as he's getting the washcloth put over his eyes, I start dropping my pants. And he's, he's laying there, and they're covering his eyes with the washcloth, and he's still prattling on. He's talking shit. And I get my pants down, and I get my butt cheeks open, and I'm about, I don't know, four inches from his face. And I just get down in the squatting position like this. Now, mind you, he wants to do a sit-up in the most fierce way. He absolutely wants to do a sit-up. So they start pushing on him and doing their thing, and I'm down like this, and they're like, okay, Tom, do the sit-up. And somebody yanks the rag off of his face at that moment, and he comes up and quite literally buries his nose in my asshole. And it only takes about half a beat before he realizes what's happened. And I'm trying to get my pants up and I'm trying to run across the room because I think he's going to chase me in anger. But he doesn't because Tom secretly really likes what's just happened. 
he jumps to his feet and he's holding his nose and he's yelling, Oh my God, I just put my nose in Hefner's ass. Oh my God, I just put my nose in Hefner's ass. And he looks like somebody who's just had their nose broke, you know, where they reach up and they're kind of holding it like this. And he's just screaming, I just put my nose in Hefner's ass. So that was the impossible sit-up. Now, there was a whole bunch of pranks through the years that we did to Tom. And eventually, when we reached our early 20s, we all moved in together in a house. So it was Rob, Tom, our fiancés at the time. Now, Tom lived in the basement with his cat, Socks. Right? And Socks was a skittish, fat bitch of a cat. We're at this point where my wife and I were about to move out, and I decided I needed to pull one last prank. One last, we're all together, you know, creme de la creme prank. So when everybody had left the house for the day for work, I went downstairs, and I decided I was going to take a shit in Sox's cat box. <laughs> now, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so... For those of you who have never shit in a cat box before, there's some logistical difficulties that go along with this that I I found out. Because although I had kind of planned this in my head, I didn't really think through how hard it is to hit a target with a turd. So I get down to the laundry room, and I'm standing there, and there's the cat box, and I'm not prepared, and... What I figured out was I had to hover to hit the target because I didn't want to get it all over myself and make a mess. And it had to look like this was just a natural transgression from the cat, right? So I hold on to the wash tub and I just hover right over the, the cat box. And I lay down what I would consider one of my best dumps of my life. A pristine, nearly foot-long dump that would probably measure from your wrist to your elbow. Actually, something your doctor would say, good job, man. Good job. That was a healthy dump, right? So I lay it down, and here's the second logistical difficulty. I didn't bring toilet paper with me. And there was no bathroom near. And so just word to the wise, if you've never dropped a deuce and and not wiped and had to walk somewhere this doesn't work out so well right so i had to do a little penguin walk upstairs to clean myself up so i knew tom was going to be suspicious because we had lived together and shit had happened but he trusted my wife he trusted my wife a lot so what i decided to do was have my wife write a note to tom and put it on our community bulletin board in the kitchen, and it simply said this, Tom, I think something's wrong with socks. You might want to check her cat box. Amy. So we all worked different schedules, and maybe a day or so went by, and there we are that fateful morning, sitting on the couch, and we're quiet, and he says, you know, I think something's really wrong with socks. And I can tell he's got no fucking idea. He has bought this thing hook, line, and sinker. And I go, really, Tom? What do you think's wrong? And he goes, Amy wrote me a note. I go, yeah. And he goes, and she said something's wrong with socks, so I went downstairs, and I checked her cat box, and he goes, I'm not kidding you. There was a turd in that cat box. And he's got his hands out, and he goes, "I've, I've never seen anything like it. And I go... Really, Tom? And he goes, yeah. Uh, I go, so, so what, what'd you do? And he goes, I actually went and found socks because I was certain that that came out of my cat and damaged her in some way. So I actually went over and I, I inspected her asshole. Really. I go, and? He goes, her asshole looks fine. I go, oh. And he goes, I just cannot, for the life of me, fathom how that came out of my cat. He goes, maybe a dog snuck in here or something, but even that's too big for a dog. He goes, I I honestly think that we might have a world record on our hand for cat dump size. And I finally, I I can't hold it anymore. And I go, Tom, it was me. 
And he goes, what was you? And I go, Tom, it, it was me. And he goes, what was you? And finally I go, Tom, I shit in the cat box. And he jumps up and he goes, oh my God. And he's got his hands out like this, almost in disgust. He's, oh my God, oh my God, I, I touched your shit. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, uh, the, the scooper's so small and the poop was so big. He goes, I, I actually, the plastic scooper, I had to break it up into these chunks. And he goes, I, I touched your shit. And he's standing there looking at his hands almost like he's angry at him. And he goes, he's, he's yelling and he finally stops and he goes, so you mean to tell me I've put my nose in your ass and I've scooped your shit? Such is the stories of Tom. But ladies and gentlemen, don't feel bad for Tom. He's doing just fine. And, you know, for Tom, the attention whore, I can guarantee you he's told these stories many more times than I have. Thank you. Hey, let's take a man-sized poop in his cat box so he thinks there's something really wrong with him. Rock and roll! What the fuck is that? It looks like cat shit. I think it is cat shit. Son, is that cat shit? No. That's your shit? No. This ain't even his shit. It's just like George Clooney and his friends, you know? Have you heard the one about him crapping in his buddy's cat box? I love that. Right? Ew, you did that shit? Nasty. Pick up your shit and get the fuck out of here! kind of surreal. I'm in my kitchen looking out, beautiful suburban backyard, and I'm on the phone with my doctor, and she says, yeah, you're right, the cancer's back. Okay. So I ask her, do you think you can get me five years so I can get my eight-year-old to his bar mitzvah. And she says, I, I think so. Uh, we'll give you some chemo pills, and I think, I think you can make it. I'm like, great. So uh, what will death be like? And she says, you know, you'll get weaker, and you'll just kind of fade away. And uh, I am so relieved because I'm exhausted. I have been battling this for two and a half years and like I am finally going to get my kids close enough to adulthood but I am getting off this hamster wheel. And so to give you a little background I had a very interesting life. I grew up in a lot of different foster homes but I had a great mom who became my mom when I was nine. But I also knew my natural family, and both those families were very invested in social justice. I grew up in California, and we really cared about community. And so with that, it was the 80s. I threw it all aside when I got in my 20s, and went into the fashion business and thought, yeah, I'll make the world beautiful instead. So I had a very glamorous life. It was sort of like Forrest Gump. I would end up in things like New York discos with Calvin Klein, and then I'd go work for him in the showroom, and then I became a shoe designer and designed the first backless tennis shoe, and like life was so fabulous. And I just thought I was destined to do something Fabulous. And then I moved to St. Louis, and I thought, okay. I like Midwest sensibility. And because I had been a foster child, 
I really did have this deep-seated desire to create this idyllic family. It was really, really important to me. So when Keds came out with the backless tennis shoes six months after I moved here, I did cry for a while that they would get all the credit for something I had done, and nobody would know how fabulous I was anymore. I decided to turn it all over to motherhood. And I did things like went to the PTA meeting, and I sat in my little chair in the library, and we used to have these international festivals because the principal at the elementary school knew that it was best that we celebrated something instead of religious holidays in public schools. But when she retired, the moms in our area thought we should have Christmas. And I said, hey, um, I think maybe we shouldn't. I think we should still have our international festival. And one of the moms, let's call her Debbie. <laughs> Debbie said, I think it'd be so nice if my kids came home with a dreidel. And I said, I think that would be a great thing to take up with your Sunday school church. Maybe you guys could do a diversity program. But for the public school, I think we should have the international festival. <laughs> Carpool was a very lonely place for me. Nobody hung out with me after school pickup. Until 2002, my kids were five and ten. Two boys. Mitchell's the oldest, he was ten. Samuel's the youngest, he's five. And I am diagnosed with a very rare form of lymphoma. Two opportunities for cure. One, a round of chemo, and the second, a stem cell transplant. And so, those moms, to their credit, showed up with casseroles and self-help books, because you know, if you de-stress, your cancer will go away. <laughs> and there's nothing like a pretty hat for a bald head. But you know what? I needed that community. I needed that community because my marriage was really bad. And what I thought to myself was, if I die, my boys need to have other moms to be there. And I also was a mom on a mission, because now I'm on a time clock. I have got to make sure that I shape these kids so that they understand the values that I stand for, like an ethical will, right? This is what I bequeath to you. Social justice, care, participate, do. So as I'm getting these things, like the hats and the gifts and the casseroles, a couple things are happening. I'm thinking, oh my God, I have to repay every favor. Can't be a taker, gotta be a giver, because you know what, if you die, you can't let them feel like you didn't give back so that they'll be there for your kids. So I spend a lot of time also trying not to offend people because clearly the Christmas thing really stayed in my head. So I'm really trying to be nice, kind of saint-like, which really works out well when you're dying. People forgive your trespasses like I can't tell you. But those things take their toll. And the disease was toxic. My home life was toxic. And I remember I was in a counseling session, and I said, you know, I feel sort of like a prostitute staying in this marriage. And I'm in a wig, and I'm looking at her, and she says, honey, there are women who stay in marriages for furs and jewelry. Keeping a roof over your head insurance, it's not so bad. We get it. You're okay. And the first round of chemo failed, and my cancer came back. And to my ex's credit, 
He really pulled it together. And we took the boys around the world and we showed them what was important. And I went in and I had that stem cell transplant for three weeks. And I thought, okay, I beat this. And my older son had his bar mitzvah. And Mitchell had a weekend of celebration. Our home was full. Friends of mine came from California and from New York, and it was fabulous. And we were the perfect family, and we stood up, and he gave a great speech, and he had so much to be proud of. He had worked so hard. Imagine three years of training for this bar mitzvah. His mother had been dying, and he had done it. He had stood up in front of 350 people. He spoke Hebrew. He gave a lesson. He was magnificent. And I decided in my infinite wisdom that Sunday after the brunch at our house, when friends were still there, that I would check his high school grades to see how he was doing And I saw that he had lied. And to me, lying is a terrible thing. It's cowardly, it's terrible, and of course, it leads to a life of juvenile delinquency and God knows what else. And I have gone through all this and I have spent all this time to show you how to be a good person and to live and to do great things and I survive cancer for this. (laughs) I said those words to my son on his very special weekend. That's all I had for him. That's the legacy I was leaving. I would like to tell you that was my bottom, but it wasn't. So a few weeks after that, when my doctor called to tell me the cancer came back, I was like, rock on, because I am a screw-up of every dimension. I cannot be a good mom. I cannot be good in this marriage. I can't even stand up for the things that I care about because I don't want to offend these suburban women. I just, like, I'm just tired. And a week after my doctor called, she called again. And she said, hey, you know, there's this clinical trial um, you want to try it? I'm like, sure, I'm dying. Why not? And it worked. Fuck. <laughs> okay. So now, well, that's harder. Now I got to live. How are you going to thank the universe for that? I know. I'm going to chase a little special and fabulous again because that's kind of crack for me. I'm just like, I'm going to run for statewide office. Go big. Because Missouri is trying to criminalize advanced medical research at this time. So in 2006, I ran for state representative and I get a phone call from a woman who today, as we stand here, or as I stand here, is a very important person in the political world in Missouri. And she calls me up because she is also one of those moms at my school. Let's call her Sarah. (laughs) And Sarah says, hi. Um, I heard that you're running for state rep. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I just wanted to let you know, do you Remember that thing about Christmas? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, the moms remember that you said candy canes had religious meaning and symbols? And I'm like, do you hand them out for Halloween? <laughs> well, we think you're really divisive and too liberal. So I just want to let you know that like, you can't really count on support from people around here. I didn't win. I lost the race. And so I started this not-for-profit because I'm still trying to give back to the universe. I've got this life. I'm trying to do something fabulous. I'm trying to leave a legacy for my kids. I'm trying to impart to them what's important. 
But at the end of the day, I'm just still not making it. And my older son has gone off to college. I'm now getting a divorce because I'm, I'm living. And my younger son, Sam, and I are home, and we get into an argument over, I don't, I don't even know what it was about. It was just so stupid. I, I can't even tell you. But it decompensates into this full, blown-out screaming match, and he's telling me I'm a victim, and I'm hearing him repeat all these things I heard in my marriage, and I'm just drowning. And he leaves, and he slams the door, and I'm on the couch, and do you ever have that feeling inside that you're like jello, and you're shaking, and you're like, this is awful. And I'm thinking, he's going to come home. He's going to come back. He's going to come back. And he, he, didn't, he didn't come back for weeks. He went to go live with his dad. I never missed a day with cancer, but I could not get out of bed. And I thought to myself, what kind of universe lets you live so you can lose everything. It's the same universe that sends you to a patient conference for the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And it was the first time I met people who survived cancer. And it was the first time I heard about the depression that follows. The survivor's guilt of burying people who didn't survive cancer. I have buried moms who have left their high school kids. I can't tell you why they're gone and I'm here. I feel like we're sort of veterans who've like been in a battle, have a little PTSD, and in the end, we're not really sure what it's all for. But that conference was a turning point for me. I stopped being ashamed of admitting that the life I was gifted with wasn't all that great. And I started to say, you know, relationships made in sickness don't always survive health. And I don't have to let people like Sarah define me. Frankly, this world is a mess. Democracy's crumbling. There's hate and bias everywhere. I didn't win an election to save the political system, and I didn't do enough to make the world a beautiful place. But I have learned this. I need to get up every day and just do my best. I got to show up. I got to try. I got to participate. And I need to live by the tenant that I hope I can impart to others, that ours is not to complete the task, nor may we desist from taking it on. What I have learned from cancer and from living is that it's not about me. It's about us, and it's about after us. So thank you. This is Risk. This is Trey Anastasio behind me now. And we just heard from Cynthia Lloyd, 
That remarkable story that she shared with us when Risk was in St. Louis in 2019. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. But on this episode, all three stories were edited, and in one case also sound designed, by our two new editors, Taj Easton and Hope Brush. Hope also edited the trio of anecdotes that are the latest anecdote compilation featured at patreon.com slash risk. This latest trio of anecdotes are by Aaron Swigart, Adi Chaween, and Rob Putnam. And he points at my windshield and he pulls the trigger and there's this huge boom and the car fills with smoke as my windshield shatters. And our ears are ringing as we just sit there in stunned silence for almost a minute. Like, wow, what just the fuck happened? So there you have it. That and over 140 bonus stories are at patreon.com slash risk. 12 different anecdote compilations, over 50 check-ins, the video version of our intro to storytelling class, and reruns of live and live stream shows, not to mention ad-free versions of episodes like this one. If you become a member at patreon.com slash risk, you will be helping us. You'll be helping keeping this thing running. We dearly need it. And also... It's so much, so much fun content over there. Oh, and if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on this week's episode is a really special one. This one was coached by our producer, Brad Lawrence. This is Ricky Lelly. Now, you will hear that Ricky has a very Italian accent. <laughs> I love when people whose voices or accents or, or just whatever, ways of talking, are interestingly different in any way. But the setting for Ricky's story, Ethiopia, is new territory for us on the show. So let's get to it. This is Ricky Lelly with a story we call The Broken Mirror. It's 2012 and, and I am 32 and I've been working for the last several months in a small city in the southern part of Ethiopia called Awasa. I'm working as a project manager for an Italian NGO on project for the development of the poorest areas of the city. And you might think, wow, what an experience, but must be tough to see what's going on over there on, on a daily basis and yeah. I agree with you. It's, it's hard looking at kids starving to death. It's hard to see women getting beaten for no reasons. People struggling to survive every day. But at 32, I've seen a lot of stuff around the world and I'm getting used to it. And most of all, 
emotions are not really my thing. I precisely remember the last time I cried. I was 12 years old at my grandma's funeral. My best friend since childhood used to say, you are like a rock. We all know we can hang on you and feel protected all the time, but a rock is also cold, can talk, and most of all, can hug someone. <laughs> I knew it, but stepping out of my comfort zone was really too scary for me. In this context, I become close to a couple of kids and they were about 14 or 15 at the time. They are both orphans and they used to live in the streets and they have been literally saved by the project leader, an amazing half-European, half-Ethiopian woman named Saba. It's summertime uh, and it's summer school break for them and they used to come to my office just to chat almost every day. Also, my girlfriend Rosella comes to visit me from Italy. She's blonde and with huge, amazing green eyes, so you can imagine how well camouflaged among the locals we are. They used to call us Ferengi all the time, as they do with all the whiteys. It means stranger, but in a sort of good way, it's okay. <laughs> we definitely look like Ferengi. I remember it's a Friday evening around 6 p.m. Me and Rosella are dealing with some mess in my apartment because that morning I forgot one open window and a couple of monkeys sneaked through the railing and had a quite good lunch with bread, beans, sugar and fresh fruits stored in my kitchen. So we hear knocking and Rosella opens the door and welcomes Dagom and Daniel. And they ask if I was home. I stopped picking up food chewed by the monkeys and we all sit outside. Uh, so let me introduce them a little bit. Dagam is the epitome of the street guy. He's tough, strong, rough, not much of a talker, but you can see through his eyes that he has love and hate, anger and joy, everything inside his heart. Daniel, Daniel is the opposite. And I don't know actually how he grew up so sweet in the streets. It's like an angel with a huge smile. Daniel is the more talking and he goes like, Ricardo, we, we want to ask you a favor. We just got our first paycheck from the bakery where we are going to work during the summer break. And we would like to ask you if you can keep the money for us. Not just because your house is safer than ours, but mostly because we are afraid to spend them in stupid stuff we don't really need. We'd like your advice every time we think to buy something. And we also want you to keep all the future paycheck for us. The thing that shocks me the most is not the level of maturity and self-awareness they have for two 14 or 15-year-old kids grown in the street where they sometimes have to sleep in the sewers to find some warmness. I am mostly shocked because they both felt that they could trust a white Ferengi <laughs> to keep their money. And most of all, they trust me to tell them the difference between a good and a bad decision. I have to maintain the big brother attitude, but while I am accepting their proposal and while I'm telling them that this is a very wise decision and that I'm so proud of them, my heart drops inside of me and I feel something I've never felt before, something I have been always trying to avoid. And while I'm processing all of that, Rosella, who knows me well, steps in, invites them to stay with us for dinner and we cook together and she pretty much saves me. <laughs> After maybe 10 days, uh, it's Daniel's birthday and I ask both the guys to join us on a one-day car trip to a small village, a couple of hours drive south from Awasa. I've been there three months before in a small community for miners and they asked me to bring some stuff they need. So they're super excited and looking at, at their happiness, I realized that for the first time in my life, I'm going to carry the responsibility for the lives of those two kids. And it eats me quite a bit. On that day, I decided to follow some suggestions I had from local friends. They told me, if you go on a long trip, 
rent a car, trust us. Rent a car with an Ethiopian driver, because if you have an accident and somebody gets hurt, even if it's not your fault, or even if you just kill a random cow that crosses the street, you, you go to jail and, and you don't know how long you're going to stay there. I decided to follow these suggestions, even if I always used to drive the car around the town. I'm confident driving in foreign countries, and I've done it so many times in Africa, US, Asia. So the day come, and the driver comes and picks the four of us up, and we drive to the village, we get there, we give them the stuff they were so in need of, and we walk a quite long trekking with the guys to one of the most amazing waterfall I've ever seen. We whiteys have boots and they are wearing flip-flops and they keep on waiting for us. They are running like gazelles. The waterfall is called Ropi and it's incredibly full of water with such a great power and most of all, the river is completely red. It looked like a painter took the red mud you can see in most of the sub-Saharan African countries and used it to paint the river. The guys are speechless. Their eyes are different. It's like they just saw Santa snowboarding in the desert and I realized they've never been out of the city in their entire life. They spent their first 15 years in the streets of a small city. It's a mix, a mix of joy, sadness, anger, a fight between giving them a great experience and not being able to do more. We spend an amazing day, we have lunch with the staff, with the local community, and then we pack our stuff and start our trip back. We are all quite exhausted and the car is super quiet while the driver is taking us home. The guys are sleeping, but I can see they are like smiling while asleep. I have to tell you something about the country roads in Africa. They have always, at any time, day and night, people walking on both sides. Even when you are in the middle of nowhere and even when it's completely dark. At the beginning, you really wonder where the hell are they going and how long will it take them to reach their destination when the last village you crossed with the car was probably two hours ago. Then you get used to it and also realize that most of them just suddenly turn into the forest and walk to some small villages in the middle of it. You'd start wondering, how do they know the exact spot to turn? And isn't it dangerous to walk alone in the savannah? And then in the end you realize that when you don't have a car or you don't have the money for a bus, you just walk, even if it takes five days to reach your destination. So now you have the picture. We are driving home around 4 p.m. I'm in the passenger seat. Rosella and the kids are in the back seat. And as I mentioned, we are all used to the roads. The people walking by, the cows, the baboons, the crafts. But suddenly something goes completely wrong. The driver is driving at around 50 miles per hour and the time stops, freezes for a moment that feels like an entire hour. A young woman starts running from the right side to the left side of the road without even take a quick look in our direction. And she's not more than 50 feet from the car. For no reason at all, she runs towards something we will later realize is our son, who is walking completely safe on the other side of the road. The driver does what I can just call a true miracle. He brakes as hard as he can, the tires lock in an instant, and he manages to drive the sliding truck just between the woman and the kid. Like in slow motion, me and the driver, we see the woman starting to run at the same time because we are both looking ahead. He brakes and the car starts sliding. Rosella and the guys are asleep and they wake up completely frightened. When the woman hears the sound of the wheels sliding on the concrete, she's already almost in the middle of the road and she takes one more step. One more step 
but slower than the ones before. And when the car reaches her, her body is probably two inches from the hood, but her face is at the exact same height of the huge and tough rearview mirror of the passenger side. She's dead. There is no way she survived that hit. That's my thought. No fear, no panic, no worries are rushing through me. That's something you feel when you don't know exactly what happened or what's going on, and I'm sure she's dead. I'm sure you can all imagine the sound of a huge mirror falling to the ground and shattering into thousand pieces. The same sound rushes into my brain in that very moment like thousand needles, and it feels like the review mirror just passed through her head. The car stops, and the driver immediately gets out of the car. I ask my girlfriend and the kids if they are okay. They are scared. They did not realize what exactly happened. I tell them not to move, and I get out of the car. I take no more than probably three steps in the direction of where I am guessing the woman is, and a group of people is already surrounding her body and the driver. And less than two minutes later, 11 people are running and carrying the woman toward the car. And there is blood everywhere. I don't know how, but she's alive and conscious. One minute later, we are 12 people in the truck. Rosella and the kids in the trunk. Four guys included the village major, one brother of the woman and two random dudes carrying the woman on their laps and keeping a sort of towel on her head. The driver and me and two other random dudes are squeezing the passenger seat. We are rushing to the hospital that is probably more than one hour drive from where we are. She's alive and conscious and groaning something in Amharic language over and over and over again. I will later understand why so many people jump into the car. Some of them just needed a ride in the same direction. <laughs> the major and some family members were looking for... Uh, yeah, I know it's bad to say, but they were looking for some money. We drive to the hospital and actually I'm not surprised. It is made of two concrete one-floor buildings and a few more made of metal sheets or something like that. They carry the woman inside one of the concrete buildings. The driver follows them. We step out of the car and we start waiting. And we wait, we wait, and we wait. I finally have the chance to check how Rosella, Dagam and Daniel are doing. She's doing okay, but I'm shocked to see the guy, how they are acting. They're acting like nothing happened. My mind actually connected the dots. They're orphans and they lived in the streets for so many years. Their hearts are used to pain, are used to death. The second part of our trip, we're supposed to go and see some great series of waterfalls in the forest as to be cancelled because it's getting dark soon. I will later understand that what was going on inside the building was that the doctors were trying to come up with some conclusion if she was going to die or not with x-rays and other random tests. The driver was paying for every test and in the end they sentenced, I don't know how, that she was going to survive. The driver gives some extra cash to the family and the major as well comes back to the car and we simply leave. We have never heard anything from anybody about it. By the time we are back to the city, it's dinner time, we are hungry, my mind is still shaking and trying to process the images over and over again. And we, actually, maybe me the most, need to focus on something else. And so I take everybody out for dinner in a very nice, tiny local food restaurant. After that, we, we bring the guys home. And right before getting into their house, I was going to talk to them and try to come up with sort of an apology for dragging them into such a traumatic situation for scaring the hell out of their heart and carving such a bad experience in their memories. But Daniel hugs Rosella, looks at me in the eyes and says, thank you, this has been the best birthday I've ever had. 
it strikes right in the middle of my chest and I felt my emotion melting one into the other. Joy, relief, fatherhood, tiredness, commotion and so on. I am 40 now and looking back at those days I realized that it was a turning point of my life even if I didn't know it at the time. I'm not talking about what I've done after I left Ethiopia. I'm talking about how two kids who have been through things we cannot even imagine broke the amphora where I was jealously hiding my emotions. I'll be honest with you, it hasn't been just a click and I became the emotion master, but from that little crack in the amphora, emotion drops started to drip one by one. It's been a long journey inside of me, but now I can sit on the top of a mountain in the Alps here in Italy, watch the sunrise and cry a little bit, just because it's beautiful. And I will never forget when this journey began. For this week's episode, folks, this is David Byrne behind me now, and we just heard from Ricky Lelly. What an amazing story! Thank you so much to Ricky and to Taj Easton on his beautiful job doing the sound editing editing of that one. (laughs) Constantly talking about editing on this show never gets easier to say. Folks, don't forget, November 17th, Risk is back at Caveat in New York City, 7 p.m. Eastern, also live-streamed on YouTube. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, don't forget that the storystudio.org is where you will find so many learning opportunities. Classes on storytelling for performance, storytelling for personal growth, Storytelling for business. Some workshops are just five hours long, split between two days, like Gail Thomas teaching storytelling for business on December 18th and 19th, or Amy Salloway teaching storytelling for performance, such as, you know, risk live shows. And Amy's class is on December 4th and 5th. We also do custom-tailored corporate workshops. Storytelling for business with your particular business's needs in mind. You can find all of that at thestorystudio.org. You can also hire me 
personally for storytelling training, you can find me at kevinallison.com. Then there's those fun video messages I create for people for all kinds of occasions. That's at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. And you can follow us on all of our socials at risk show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And then on Twitter and Instagram, I am also at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>